We're in the last week of our broken series, and if you were here at the beginning, you'll remember I said that one of the great temptations in our life is to try to resist God, to resist what God uh, is doing in our life, wants to do, or maybe what he wants to do around our lives. And we began by looking at Caiaphas, the high priest, and how he tried everything within his power to keep Jesus from being and doing what God had sent Jesus here to do. And then we saw it in the life of Judas when things weren't going the way he thought they should go. He tried to strike a deal. Nothing worked out. And then last week we saw it in the life of Pilate who didn't want to judge Jesus but ended up condemning him. Then we saw it in the life of Barabbas. And my guess is just like these guys, all of us have a story in our lives of a time when we try to resist God. And uh, I think there are several reasons we try. One, one I said at the beginning is we just don't want to give up control of our lives. There are certain things in our life, certain areas in our life, maybe a habit, a relationship. We just don't want to give up. And we feel if God gets too close, if he begins to meddle too much in our life, he's going to mess things up. So we try to keep God at an arm's distance. But there's another reason we're going to see this weekend is sometimes we resist God because we're mad at God. We're angry at God. We're disappointed with God. And that's why I want to talk about over the next few minutes. And I want us to look at a couple of the lesser known individuals in the Bible. And what I want you to see is when push came to shove, how one of them accepted Jesus Christ as the savior of the world, but the other one rejected him. And the reason he rejected is because his anger at God went so deep that even when there was no hope, even at the end of his life, he refused to open his heart to the only one who could actually help him. And, and you may be sitting here this weekend and that may sound like someone in your life. In fact, maybe that describes somebody that you live with. You say, that describes my spouse. A lot of anger. They want nothing to do with God because of something that happened in their life. Or maybe it would describe your parent. Or maybe it would describe one of your children. Maybe it would describe a roommate. Maybe as you sit here this weekend, it actually describes you. I mean, maybe, maybe you've been greatly disappointed by life. Maybe it's something that happened to you as a child. Maybe somebody left or somebody divorced. Or maybe somebody died. Or maybe, maybe you were abused. But, but, but there's this one monumental event in your past that not only has defined your life, it has followed you everywhere you've gone through life. It's the reference point to everything that happens to you in life. And if you're honest, you would admit somewhere along that journey, somewhere in your life, you turned your anger away from life, you turned your anger away from those circumstances, and you turned your anger toward God. I mean, after all, how can you trust a God who could have kept all of those bad things from happening, but he didn't? So as you sit here this week and you're angry and you're kind of just through with God. We're gonna see that in the life of one of these individuals this weekend. If you have your Bible, turn with me over to Luke chapter 23. Uh, and as you're turning, let me just kind of bring you up to speed. We're looking into the last few minutes in the life of Jesus Christ. We're looking at the crucifixion. But this is what's interesting. What I want you to see is that right in the middle of the crucifixion, God introduces us to two men who were literally outcasts of society. We know very little about these guys. We don't even know their names. But we do know that these two men committed offenses considered so heinous that the Roman government said, listen, it's not, it's not bad enough to make them a slave. That's not punishment enough. It's not punishment enough to have them row, row the emperor around on a boat. That's not punishment enough. These guys have to die. They have to be crucified. And I'm sure that when these two men heard the sentence of being guilty of their crimes and that they had to go to the cross, these guys, they, they knew what was ahead of them. Crucifixion wasn't new to them. They'd seen it all before. 
They knew that on that day that they would have to carry their own crosses through the streets of Jerusalem on the way to their death. They knew that the hatred that would be directed towards them by the crowds that lined the streets that day would be indescribable. They, they knew all this. They knew already how horrible crucifixion was. They knew that at some point they would be thrown on top of a cross. Spikes would be driven through their hands, through their feet. They knew they wouldn't die from the loss of blood. They knew that eventually when they no longer had the strength to push themselves up on the cross to get air into their lungs, they knew at that point they would die a horrible death of suffocation. They knew that. They both knew that it wasn't unusual for a man to hang on a cross for days before him, until he finally died. They had walked by, I'm sure many times, and looked up on that hill and seen the bloated and the tortured bodies, and they'd seen the birds pick at the condemned man's flesh, even before the guy was dead. They had seen all this. They knew that there would be no friends there to defend them. There wouldn't be any family members there to stand up for them. Their friends and family, they were long gone. They knew that once they died, their bodies would be dragged through the streets to the trash dump on the edge of town. There, they knew there'd be no marker. There would be no reference to their life. They, would knew, they knew it would be as if they had never lived. It was the worst possible ending for life. They knew all of this. But what they didn't know was that as they hung on their own crosses that day, they wouldn't be the center of attention. Because on this particular day, Jesus, who some called the Messiah, some called the King of the Jews, some even called the Savior of the world, on this particular day, Jesus would also be crucified along with them. And so you get to Luke chapter 23, and right before Jesus takes his last breath, God introduces us, think about this, to these two worthless men, at least from a human perspective, yet they're players in this story. And not only are they players, they have a script. They have a role. We know what they said. And so as you're studying this, you can't help have this question. Why would God bring these two individuals into this story at such a critical time? I mean, think about this. His only begotten son is hanging on a cross. Jesus Christ is getting ready to die for the sins of all mankind. I mean, this is like, other than the resurrection, the epic moment in the history of mankind. And God chooses right now to introduce us to these two men. Why would he do that? I think it's because God understands the anger and the frustration that many of us carry in our life toward him. And so just minutes away from Jesus' last breath, there's a message here for those who are disappointed with life and those who are angry with God. If you have your Bible, Luke 23, let's pick it up, verse 33. If not, the verses will be on the side screen. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered. At him. By the way, there's a couple of different groups that are surrounding the cross that day. One is you have some of Jesus' followers, some of his disciples are there. And understand that right now they are incredibly disillusioned. They're incredibly disappointed. In fact, they're angry because many in this group, they had given up everything to follow Jesus. They had walked away from their families. They turned their back on their careers. They had risked their reputation. I'm sure they had given him money. They had defended him. And they had believed with all of their hearts that he was indeed the Messiah. He was going to be the king of the Jews. He was going to be the savior of the world. But now he's, he's dying. Not only is he dying, he's dying in the most humiliating way possible. 
I mean, in their minds, it's as if God punctuated the fact, this is not my son, this is not the Messiah, this is not the Savior of the world. You believe the lie. So they're disappointed. They don't know what to think. They're angry. They're frustrated. So that's one group. But there's also a second group around the cross that day. It's the religious leaders. And this is a group of men we've seen in this series. They feared Jesus because of the influence that he held over the people. We talked about last week, by now a lot of people, they had bought into Jesus' teaching. They had been swayed by his teaching. And the more he taught and the more miracles he performed, the more the crowds increased. In fact, one Pharisee made this statement in John 12, 19. The whole world is going after him. And that scared him. Because if they're following Jesus, that meant that they were losing their influence. They were losing their power, their authority over the people. And they hated him for that. But that's not the only reason they hated him. During Jesus' earthly ministries, if you've read the Gospels, you know that Jesus often rebuked these religious leaders for their conduct, for their behavior. He rebuked them for their failure to shepherd the people. He rebuked them for being corrupt. He, he rebuked them for being dishonest. And they absolutely hated him. And now with Jesus on a cross... They're able to say the things they always wanted to say, but because they feared the crowds, they were afraid to say. But now there's no fear. So it says in verse 35, they said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine and vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And so you just can imagine this scene. And somewhere in the midst of all of this chaos, one of the criminals also turns his attention to Jesus, who's being crucified next to him. And it says in verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. So here's this criminal, this thief, hanging on the cross beside Jesus. And he's so disgusted with Jesus also that he begins to insult Jesus. And my guess is the Roman guards, they have never seen anything like this before. They've never heard anything like this before. They're used to being insulted. As guards, they're used to being cursed at, but they weren't used to hearing a criminal turn his anger on another person who's also being crucified right beside him. So he hurls insults at him. It's interesting, the Greek word that, that, that Luke uses for hurled insults is the word that we translate to blaspheme. So he blasphemes him, but that's not enough. Verse 39, he says, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. And, and if you were just reading through that, you would think, well, maybe, maybe there's some sincerity here, right? But understand that's not what's going on. He's being sarcastic. Really what he is saying is, are you kidding me? You're no Messiah. You're no king. You're a phony. You're a criminal just like us. You can't save you. God can't save you. Nobody can save you. And I'm sure that everybody surrounding that cro the cross that day was thinking, wow, where did that come from? Where did all that anger, that hatred, where did all that disgust come from? Well, my guess is that somewhere along the way, this man had done what many of us do. At some point on his journey called life, he began to confuse life with God. And because life had treated him poorly, and because of life and decisions and circumstances had robbed him of his dreams, and because of life and, and decisions and circumstances had brought him to this point, somewhere along the way, he began to confuse life with God. 
in what was ultimately the result of unfortunate circumstances and poor decisions and bad choices in his life, now all of a sudden, from his perspective, this is all God's fault. And so all of a sudden, he doesn't fear Rome. He doesn't fear death. He certainly isn't going to fear God. In fact, I think he probably had the attitude, God, I wasn't able to trust you while I was facing life. Why in the world would I trust you when I'm now facing death? He confused life with God. And as a result, even though he's just a few minutes from dying, his fist was closed so tightly, there was no possible way he was going to open up to God. There was no possible way that he's going to ask for help from the God who had disappointed him so much in his life. My guess is some of you here this weekend, you can relate to that. You've been severely disappointed by life. In fact, when people talk to you, maybe you describe your life, you say, you know what, it, I just, it's almost as if God's my enemy. It's like I've been dealt a bad hand. And you're angry at God for not coming through in that time or maybe times in your life when you really, really wanted him to come through. Maybe, maybe God didn't answer a prayer the way you wanted it answered. Maybe there was someone close to you in your life and, and they got some kind of disease or something happened and you prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for healing. Maybe it was a child, maybe it was a parent and God didn't answer the prayer the way you wanted it answered and because of that, you gave up on God. You don't trust God. You were so angry at God. Maybe it's because God didn't prevent that person that you should have been able to trust. God didn't prevent that person from abusing you. It could be a number of reasons. I mean, for some of you, as you sit here this weekend, in your mind, it's God's fault that you lost your marriage. It's God's fault that you lost your job or your child or you lost all of your financial security. And so life has disappointed you. And it's all God's fault because he allowed it to happen. Because he should have stepped in and he should have stopped it, but he didn't. And so as you sit here this weekend, you're just, you're just angry. Yeah, you'll come to church and You'll go through the motions, but you're never going to connect. You're never going to really open up to him. You're certainly not going to submit to him because you don't trust him. And if you were to come up here and I were to give you a microphone and I were to allow you to share your story, we would probably agree you have every reason to be angry. And we might even wonder, no wonder you can't trust God, right? The problem is this. Regardless of how little you trust God, regardless of how angry you are at God, you're still filled with all of the inner turmoil because there's still no relief. Your anger at God, you're resisting God. It hasn't brought your job back. It hasn't restored your marriage. It hasn't brought your kid back. The pain is still there. The hurt's still there. The bitterness is still there. So in reality, turning your back on God, where has that gotten you? It hasn't brought you any peace or any satisfaction. Being angry and closing your heart toward God, it hasn't helped you make any sense out of what happened to you. It hasn't brought any clarity. It certainly hasn't brought closure. And in the very same way, when you study this criminal on the cross, the, the irony of the situation is this. Even at the very end of his life, when he had nothing to lose, he still would not open his heart to the only one who could do something about his situation. 
I mean, in essence, he was saying this, I hate my life, but I still refuse to open up my life to the one who can change my life. He's basically saying, I hate my circumstances, but I still won't open up my heart. I still won't open up my life to the only one who can do something about my circumstances. I mean, think about this. If in that moment, within a few minutes of death, if he would have just cried out, God, I need you. God, where are you? I think God would have responded. I'm about 10 feet to your left, suffering right along with you. If he would have just cried out, God, where have you been all of my life? I think God would have answered, I've been with you every step of the way. And I've been working behind the scenes, engineering your circumstances to bring you right here in the crosshairs of history. I brought you within 10 feet of the Redeemer of all mankind. And the one on your left can offer you right now what life has never been able to offer you. Now, I, I know, I know I'm going to get emails. I know this is going to offend some of you, but I, I have to say it. I know because I know many of you. I know you've been disappointed in life. You've been hurt in life. I know that it's not the way you planned it. I mean, when you charted out your life, this is not the way you expected it to go down. You expected, you expected to outlive your children. You expected when you said for better or for worse, it was going to last forever. You expected you were going to use that college degree and career and you were going to build an income and you were going to have an incredible, you were going to live the American, these are the things you expected and life just has not worked out the way you thought it was going to work out. And so you kind of lost confidence in God. But do you know where God has been all these years that you've been angry at him? He's been right beside you. And if you could have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with God and you ask, why did you allow all this bad stuff to happen to me? Do you know what he, I think he would say? I am pretty sure his answer would be similar to the answer he would have given this criminal on the cross. I think God would probably say the reason I allowed it to happen is because I wanted to bring you to the place in your life where maybe out of brokenness and in desperation, you would just throw your arms open and say, God, I need you. I can't make any sense out of my life. God, I can't make any sense out of my circumstances. And I have no hope apart from you. Because I'm going to tell you as a friend, not as a pastor, as a friend, only there and in that moment will you receive from your heavenly father what life has not given you. But he can now, unfortunately, this criminal never got there. He refused to open up to the only one who could save him. But the other criminal, you know, he's hanging out, literally, and, and he's eavesdropping on the conversation. And he responds differently. Look at verse 40. The other criminal rebuked him. We're talking about the other, you know, the, the second. Don't you fear God? I mean, he, he's like, hey, listen, what is wrong with you? I mean, obviously, you don't feel, fear the Romans. Apparently, you don't fear death. But this is it for us, buddy. This is the end. Don't you at least fear God? Look at verse 40. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And, and, and he's like, what is wrong with you? Why are you ticked at him? He's not the one to blame. I mean, we have every reason to be angry at ourselves. 
We've wasted our lives. There's no hope for us. It's not this guy's fault. So he, he does the unthinkable in verse 42. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In other words, Jesus, will you give me precisely what I don't deserve? I know it's too late for me to change. I know it's too late for me to make amends for my life. I know it's too late for me to start down a new path. I can't come down off of this cross and reconcile and, and all the hurt and damage and do, I've done. I can't make it right now. It's too late. I can't do anything. No time for that. That ship has sailed. So Jesus, I'm asking you to do something for me that I don't deserve. Will you please remember me when you get to your kingdom? Will you please give to me what life has not given me? Will you please give to me what life has taken from me? And would you be for me what no one has ever been for me? Will you do that? In verse 43, Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. And I just want you to know, this response to this criminal from Jesus is the same response he holds out to all of us when we finally get to that place where we're ready to open up our lives to him. You know what he says? I will give you what life didn't give you. I will give you what life has taken from you. I will be for you what no one has ever been able to be for you. And I will give you precisely what you don't deserve simply because you asked. I want to close by asking you a question, okay? We're in church. You can't be honest in church. You can't be honest anywhere. And we're among friends. Turn to the person beside you. Just say, hey, friend. See, we're all friends. We're all friends. So let me ask you a question, okay? Here we go. Raise your hand if you've ever been angry at God. Okay. The rest of you are liars. Okay, good. We'll cover it. We'll do a whole series on lying after Easter. But... Uh, I want to ask you for a show of hands. I did at the other services. I want to ask you this morning. But I wonder how many of you, if I asked you to raise your hand, would have to raise your hand. I'm still angry at God. Let me tell you something. You just need to know this. God can handle your anger, but you can't. God can survive your anger unscathed, but you can't. It doesn't really impact God when you're angry at him. He doesn't get angry in return. He's not like us. He doesn't lose any sleep thinking, oh, Mike's angry at me. I can't sleep. That's just, that's not God, right? God's okay. In fact, there are many times in the Psalms where David was so angry at God. God's like, oh, just get it out, you know. But I will tell you this. As long as you're living life angry at God, you just need to know all you're doing is locking out of your life the only one who actually can do something about what's happened in your life. He's the only one who can do something about your pain. He's the only one that can address your circumstances. And when you're finally able to distinguish between life and God, and when you're finally able to say, God, this is uncomfortable, it seems awkward, it's a little scary, but God, I want to open my heart and life to you 
God, I still don't understand. I don't know that I will ever understand why you allow certain things to happen in my life. But I don't want to live another day on this planet separated from the only one who can do something about my life. And I'm telling you, when you can get there, God at that moment, he will give to you what life hasn't given to you. He will give to you what life can't give you. He will be for you what no one will ever be able to be for you because he is going to give and extend to you his grace, his mercy, and his love in your time of need. And I just want you to know that when you finally open up your heart to God and invite him into your hurt and wounded life, you'll discover that he is, in fact, the giver of life, regardless of your circumstances. And he'll begin to work to bring about changes on the inside of your life that ultimately they will begin to work themselves to the outside of your life. And just like this second criminal on the cross, he'll give you what you don't deserve. He'll give you what life can never give you. And he'll be for you what no one will ever be able to be for you. He'll be your God. Would you bow with me? Would that describe you this weekend? Angry at God? Is it possible? Is it possible that God has brought you right here, right now into the crosshairs of history? And if you would just be like the thief on the cross saying, God, I'm open to you. He'll give you what life can't give you. He'll give you what life has taken away from you. He'll be for you what no one will ever be able to be for you. And, and he'll give you precisely what you, you could never earn or deserve. He'll give you life with him. And maybe God has brought you to the crosshairs of this moment because there's healing that needs to take place and restoration and peace and hope. We're going to have a song here in a second and there's a couple of there's a couple of lines you'll hear. One is he says, I'll offer you my warm embrace to make you feel my love. There's another line where he says, I can make all your dreams come true. Because see, when you submit to God, it's not about your dreams. It's not about your will as we've seen in the series. Now it's about his will be done in our life. And he says, man, if you'll just submit to me, your life will play out perfectly as I designed it. But you're going to have to trust me because my plan for you may not be your plan for you. But wherever I take you, I will be with you every step of the way. Father, right now, I, I pray for two particular groups of people. One, for those who have never made the decision to accept the gift of your son and what he did on the cross to pay for their sins so that they could be reconciled back into a relationship with you. Maybe they've danced around the circles and they've gotten right up to the line, but that step of faith they've never been able to take. And maybe it's because they're angry and disappointed with life. Father, help them to separate that from who you are. 
and realize that maybe you used everything in their life to bring them to this moment that could change their life forever. And then I pray for those of us who, even though we're in the family of God, Father, we're not exempt from being angry and disappointed with you. Because often when we become Christians and followers of Jesus Christ, we think that our life's going to be incredible. It's going to be a rose garden. And Father, you, just, you didn't promise that. You basically told us we're going to have 70, 80 years on this planet, which is nothing but a, a blip on the radar screen when we think of us being eternal creatures. But your big plan's about eternity and how we're being prepared and how we're impacting the lives of those around us. And when we could put that in perspective, it changes everything. So Father, I pray this will be the day we walk out of here with our anger released and our joy and our peace restored because you're an incredible God. And we give you the glory for what you're gonna do in all of our hearts and lives. In your name we pray.